Okay, Romans 8, let's uh, read this together, uh, verse 12 to 17, and then we're going to pray. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live, verse 13, according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all, verse 14, who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. So, Father, we come to you, and we're asking for your help, Lord. It's just very clear from this little passage that your spirit is working in our lives, and that you have a very specific mission in our lives, some powerful things you want us to know. Help us, Lord, to be convinced that we are not debtors to the flesh, but that we are instead indebted to the Holy Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to follow the Spirit, and help us also to understand that the Spirit is trying to help us see that we are children of the living God, that we belong to you, that you love us, and stirring within us, drawing us to yourself. Help us, Father, to see this glorious and incredible position that is ours. Lift our heads high, Lord, according to who you've made us, remade us, Lord, to be. And help me, Father, in the teaching of your word to be able to communicate well that we might, Lord, understand and rejoice and glory in over what you, Lord, have said to us and what you've said about us. So we thank you, Father. We ask, Lord, for the aid and the help of your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. This last week, uh, Christina and I, we went down to uh, Southern California. The first Calvary Chapel started years ago in Costa Mesa. And so uh, they have a conference every year now for different pastors and leaders from Calvary Chapel's kind of throughout the world. You don't have to go, but it's just like a, if you want to go kind of thing. And I love going. It's great to have the fellowship, the time of teaching, ministering to guys, receiving, you know, stuff like that. So anyways, we were down there for a couple days. And um, one of the sessions that they had was not your classic teaching, but it was a panel of five uh, pastors who are like veterans. And these guys were all, I think, about 65 years at least of age. And they've been serving the Lord for about 40 years at least in their lives. And so they were all on this platform. And uh, as they're all kind of sitting there, the, the question was, what would you say to a younger version of yourself? If you could go back in time and speak to the younger you, what would you tell them? You know, So I'm like on the edge of my seat, like, oh, I want to hear what these guys have to say. And they broke it into a few categories, like in your family life, your marriage life, ministry, you know, church world, and also just your personal walk with God. What would you say to a younger version of yourself? Well, one of the guys, Wayne Taylor, he pastors at Calvary in Seattle. Uh, he 
said in the area about like our personal walk with the Lord. He said, if I could talk to a younger version of myself, I would go back and I would tell him, pay attention to your sin. Pay attention to your sin because the tendencies that you have now, they do not just go away over time. They are in their infant stage at this point in your life. But left unchecked, they grow to become full-grown and monstrous in your older years if you do not deal with them now. And man, when he said that, it was like, well, that was, I thought they were going to say like, you know, save your bell bottoms or something like that, you know. <laughs> it was intense. I just thought that's such a great word. And, and Paul is actually going to, you've probably noticed it in the text that we just read. One of the exhortations he's going to give us is that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are now to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We are to kill sin before it kills us, basically, is what Paul is going to, to communicate to us in this text. So, so this passage, there's two big concepts with a lot of little connected truths to each one of these two big concepts. And the first big one is simply this. You are, I am a debtor, okay? And not to the flesh, but to the Spirit, right? We are in debt to the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer today, you are in debt to the Spirit of God. So we're going to take a look at what that means. And then the second big thing is that we are children of God. The Spirit of God, what we're going to see in this text, he, part of his ministry and his work, and Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit chapter. The Holy Spirit is working so hard to help us understand that we are in debt to him and not to the flesh. And he's working also so hard to help us understand that we are God's kids and the implications of what it means to be the children of God. So we're going to look at those two things today, starting with the first one, that we are debtors, not to the flesh, but to the Holy Spirit. So let's just go through it line by line, starting in verse 12. Just look at it in your Bibles with me. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. When Paul says, so then, he's actually using two words in the Greek language that are like, it's like a double therefore. Like, therefore, 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 wherefore. It's, it's kind of a, a way that he would write to say, I've come to a really big and significant con- con- conclusion here. Uh, we, everything we've been looking at, there's something really important that I've now landed on. And, you know, what did we study last week? Well, we saw that there is specifically this thing called the law of the Spirit, verse 2 to 4 of this chapter. And the law of the Spirit, or another way of saying it, the principle of the Spirit, is very simple, and it's that the Holy Spirit is working so hard now to grow us and to transform us and to sanctify us. Just like there'd be like the principle or the law of gravity pulling us down, but then another law, the law of aerodynamics, getting the air, the plane up in the air, the law or the principle of the Spirit is working hard to pull us away from the law that we used to be bound by, the law of sin, the law of the Spirit. So that's like good news for us because we think about it and we think, okay, the Holy Spirit, He is working hard to sanctify us. He is working hard to grow us. Even when I'm not working that hard, the Holy Spirit is working hard. 
And he's moving and he's working and he's desiring a better, transformed, more Christ-like version of Nate than existed previously. So the law of the Spirit is there. So then, if that's true, what Paul is saying, so then we are, and here's his big announcement, we are, verse 12, we are debtors. We owe a debt. Now, before he finishes the sentence, because the the way the sentence is going to end is, so then, if that's true, the law of the Spirit, we are debtors to the Spirit. If that's the way the sentence is supposed to end, Paul takes a break before he finishes and tells us who we're a debtor to. He tells us who we're not a debtor to. And he says, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Before you know that you're a debtor to the spirit, you need to know that you are not any longer a debtor to the flesh. Now, before you were a Christian, before you came to know Christ, uh, this could not be said of you. You know, before I knew the Lord, I was, I was completely in debt to the flesh. I could only operate by the sinful and old nature. But now that I'm in Christ, I have an opportunity to resist the sinful, ungodly motives, desires within those sinful affections, and I can turn myself to the Lord. I do not have to obey uh, and listen to the flesh. But you know how our flesh is. Our flesh, our sinful desires, and here Paul is like personifying the flesh, like it's a person that you do not owe any longer. Uh, But you know how the flesh is. The flesh loves to say to us, hey, you know, you've been good for like a really long time. You know, you're on like a church streak right now. You're on a, like a praying streak right now. Like you've been good for a really long time. You deserve to flesh out. You deserve a little bit of sin. You deserve a little, a little bit of that. Our flesh loves to whisper that into our ears. You owe it to yourself. This will feel so good. You were only made for these things. It's only natural. But what Paul is telling us is that actually we don't have to go there. For the Christian, it's a decision. I am not in debt to live according to the ways of the flesh or those sinful tendencies. A few weeks ago, uh, somebody let me drive a uh, really fast uh, Tesla. Yeah, it was, it was exciting. Part of the reason I'm telling you this, cause I was driving it for about 30 minutes and I just didn't want any of you to like, maybe you saw me cruising in a Tesla and you're like, now how did he afford that? I'm gonna, not going to tithe anymore uh, or something. Okay. So I just wanted you to know it was borrowed. I was just cruising around. But anyways, uh, it was fast. It was really fast, really fast. Like, I, I don't think I could be a Christian and have a car like that, that fast. <laughs> But the thing I really liked about it was it has this uh, autopilot mode. Not cruise control, but autopilot. As long as there's a white line on the side of the road, you just pull this little lever, and it like calibrates, and then it takes over. Like You don't press the gas. You don't push the brake. You don't steer. It steers for you. You see a little thing on the screen that shows the car in front of you, and the car's next to you. And you hit the blinker, like when you're going in two lanes, you hit the blinker to get in the fast lane, and it waits for a moment when it's clear, and then it shifts for you. You come up to a stop 
sign and there's somebody in front of you, they're stopped already, it hits the brakes for you and then it starts to accelerate, it's freaky at first, you know, because you're like, oh, that first stop that we came to, the cars are slowing down and we we're right here on Highway 68. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 like, this is weird. And, uh, but it's like doing the thing for you. But you have to activate it. This is what Paul is telling us. We do not have to live in, we do not have to activate the flesh. We don't have to live in that mode. We're not bound by it. He says, for a Christian in Christ, new nature in you. This is the glorious truth, the law of the spirit. He is operating in your life. He is more for your growth and sanctification than you are. And as he's like working in you and stirring in you and moving in you, there's this glorious truth. You are in debt to him. You owe him, but you don't owe the flesh. You don't have to go there. This is like really powerful for a lot of different reasons, but maybe one big reason is there's probably some of you here today, you think about your sinful tendencies. You think about your histories and you wonder, am I bound to go back to that? Am I bound to fail in that area? Am I bound to give into it? Is that just going to happen in my life? And Paul is saying the beautiful truth of the gospel. You wonder what Jesus was doing when he was hanging there on that tree? One of the things that he was doing was making it possible for us to be able to live in an era where we could say, By the grace of God, by the Spirit working in me, the new nature that Christ has given to me, I will sin, absolutely. I will struggle, absolutely. I will go into the realm of the flesh, absolutely. I will click that little lever, and I will go into flesh mode, but I don't have to. By the power of the Spirit, there's another way, another way, okay? So that's a incredible truth for us to receive. Do you believe that from the Lord? When Jesus said, it is finished, do you believe that part of what he was saying was the power of the sinful nature over you is finished? The law of the Spirit is stronger. Now, verse 13, he goes on and he tells us something else about this indebtedness to the Holy Spirit. He says, because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And we know that to be true. We've experienced that. If you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you've experienced those seasons in your life where you've given in to the flesh and you just kind of chased after it for a while. And as you have, did you have joy? Did you have peace? Did you have gladness? Did you have rest? No, you didn't have those things. We had turmoil, heartache, agony, pain. That's what he's talking about. When we live by the flesh, we die. We experience versions of death. However, but if by the Spirit... Check this out, verse 13. If by the Spirit, so with the Spirit, the Spirit's help, the the Spirit's strength, the Spirit's energy, the Spirit's effectiveness, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. All right, this is powerful. He's announcing to us, he's saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is right there. He wants to grow you. However, he will not force that process. He'll wait. The law of the Spirit, the principle of the Spirit, all his horsepower is there, ready. So if by the Spirit, then you, here's where we come in. 
Some of us have heard the phrase, let go and let God. And we've like heard that kind of concept. Well, just think about how that would maybe kind of be balanced with this concept that Paul is holding out. If you, by the Spirit, the Spirit's power, but if you, with the Spirit's help, put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So we are engaged in the process of putting to death the deeds of the body. Like I mentioned earlier, we are engaged with the Spirit in killing sin, or else it will kill us. So we have a decision. We have a decision. Uh, last year I went to, uh, I was up in Oakland, and I brought my daughters to their first Dodgers game. They were playing against the A's, so we went there, and uh, the tickets were just so much cheaper there than they are in San Francisco. So we went there, and we were watching this game. They just happened to be doing an interleague game, and they're playing. And we're watching the game, and the, my daughters, like, they really love baseball, so they're asking all these questions and stuff. But as we're watching, I'm watching this A's pitcher. He's out there. He's just throwing right-handed pitcher. He's pitching, and then I'm talking with them, kind of watching, and then there's an out, and then I look again, and I, on the mound, now there's not a right-handed pitcher, but a left-handed pitcher. But I didn't remember like the manager coming out and a pitcher's change or anything like that. It was just like there was a right-hander, and now there's a left-hander. And when I saw that, I started freaking out because I remembered hearing that there's that the A's, and now, now he pitches for the Blue Jays, but there's actually a major league pitcher who he, he can pitch with both hands. And apparently when he was a kid, uh, he was a right-hander, but his dad wanted him to be versatile, and I'm sure it was a really fun childhood, but he <laughs> had to learn also how to pitch left-handed. And so like, he has a glove with six fingers, and before the batter comes up to bat, he puts the glove on the hand that he's committed to, and then like, they had to make a new rule for this guy. When he started pitching, like, you have to decide ahead of time which hand you're going to pitch with to that batter. You know? so, and I look out there, and I'm like, girls, we're seeing a guy who can pitch with two hands. It's like their first game ever. They're like, so there must be like a lot of these guys out there. I'm like, this is the only one ever. I mean, this is incredible. So anyways... I was thinking about that guy, and I was thinking, this is what the Lord has done for you and for me. We have what we're used to, but now, by the Spirit, we can do a different thing. But it's the choice is ours. Will we, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body? When we do... He says, we experience elements of life. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He said, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The flesh is there. The flesh is strong. But we are to be with the Spirit's aid and help, his energy, because he's into it. He's into it. We're to put to death the deeds of the body. How do you bring the flesh to a place of nothingness or death? How do you bring the flesh to a place uh, where it's cut off or mortified? How, how do you do that? Well, you just think about it. You know, there's the starving of your flesh. The more we feed the flesh, it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. The more influence we give to it, the more material that we consume that is... Uh, fleshly in orientation, of course the stronger the flesh is going to get. The more that we allow a thought process 
you know, that is so anti the gospel message. You see another person and you allow like a root of bitterness to come in to your heart and you just keep feeding that, you know, and you have conversations with people like, can you imagine this person? Can you see the way they're operating? You just talk about it. Talk, talk, talk. It's a feeding of the flesh, but a cutting off of the flesh, a putting to death the deeds of the flesh says, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to speak that way because the more I do, the more alive the flesh becomes within me and it begins to dominate over me rather than the spirit dominating over it. Or maybe like another example, you think about fear. Fear is something that the Lord has not given to us. God says, I've not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-discipline or self-control. We're exhorted over and over again in scripture. Don't fear. Don't fear. Don't fear. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But we struggle so often with fear. Maybe for you, you're the kind of person where you like tune into the news and you just start to become afraid. And around every corner, there's fear in your heart. There's worry, anxiety. It's holding you down. Perhaps for you, you must not feed the flesh. You must starve the flesh in that area. You must confess it to other people. You must say, I'm not going to check in on the news five times a day because I'm just, it's not doing a good thing for me in my heart and in my life. We must starve the flesh, kill the flesh before it kills us. We must take away its very breath. It is hunting us. We must hunt after it. And so Paul is saying that by the Spirit's aid, we can put to death the deeds of the body. And if so, then we will live. All right. So we need to consider that. How does that work in our own lives? What are some of the areas? You know, I'm a debtor to the Lord, to the Spirit. I've got a choice. I want to walk by the Spirit. Okay, so then in verse 14, this is where he kind of fills in the blank. As he'd said, verse 12, you're a debtor. Here we learn who we're a debtor to. And I've already been spoiling it over and over again by saying to the Holy Spirit. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we are in debt to the Holy Spirit to let him lead our lives. That's basically what Paul is saying. We owe that to the Holy Spirit. Why? Why do we owe the Spirit? When you think about it, You were not convicted of your sin without the Holy Spirit. Man, for me, when I finally like submitted to the Lord, that was the Holy Spirit just chasing me down, following me into places that I'm sure he did not want to be, convicting my heart about sin that I'm embarrassed of. But he just kept at it. Like, Nate, what are you doing? This is not you. This is not God's call in your life. What are you doing? And eventually this conviction came upon my heart. Where did that come from? From me? No. It came from him. He was placing that conviction upon my heart and upon my life. Then I began to understand the gospel message. The cross of Christ that Jesus substituted himself for me upon that tree. That he went into the, to the grave and that he rose from the dead for me. I began to understand what Jesus had done for me. That was the Holy Spirit giving me that understanding. And then when I with my mouth confessed the Lord and when I with my heart believed in the Lord, the Bible teaches that I became born again, born of the Spirit. That was the Spirit of God doing that. And then he came to live inside of me. 
live inside of me. You can say it like this. Jesus loved us, so he died for us. The Holy Spirit loves us, so he lives inside of us. So we, we have a great debt to the Holy Spirit. So he says, so here's what the Holy Spirit wants. Leadership. Leadership of our lives. Now I get that the way that we often use that phrase, like led by the Spirit, I think a lot of times it's gotten, it's gotten like a little bit of like Christianese, like churchy language that now we kind of use it for, you know? So like, hey, you know, why did you, that encouraging text message was just like right at the right moment. You know, why did you send that to me right now? You know, it's like, well, I just was led. I just feel led by the Spirit to send you that message right now. You know, that's cool. Or like, hey, why'd you, you know, why'd you, I don't know, why'd you come to the 11 o'clock service today? I don't know. It wasn't that I was sleepy. I was led by the Spirit to come to the 11 o'clock service. You know, like just stuff, stuff like that. You know, like why did you get involved in that ministry? Oh, because I just had this like, I felt led, you know, kind of thing. I felt led, or I feel, I felt led to say this or to say that, you know, kind of thing. Sometimes that can be cool. Sometimes that can be confusing too, right? Because there are times where it's like, well, maybe that was like our emotions. Maybe that wasn't real. Like we weren't really being led by the Spirit. I don't think that Paul is talking about these moments of being led by the Spirit. I think what he's talking about here is there's being led by the flesh and then there's letting the Spirit be the leader of your whole life. Think of it like a shepherd over a sheep. And the, that sheep can, is, is either going to follow the leadership of the shepherd be you know, in tune with the will and the desires of the shepherd, be led to the pastures the shepherd has for it, or that sheep can be obstinate and rebel and continually uh, try to avoid the leadership of that shepherd. I think that's the kind of leadership that the Spirit is looking for in our lives. And so we are debtors to him. He's done so much for us, we want to come under his leadership. Notice here that there's no in-between option. There really isn't like a third way of like either for a Christian, I'm either going to follow the flesh or I'll follow the spirit or a third way, I'll follow myself. He's like, that's not possible. It's either the flesh or the spirit. So what we're looking for in general is a life that is led by the spirit of God, saturated by the word of God, uh, com- uh, submitted to the plans of God with, of course, there will be moments where you have blips into going into operating in the flesh and you repent of those. You confess those to the Lord. You cut off, mortify those elements of the flesh, but in general being led by the spirit of God. Okay. So That's what Paul is explaining uh, to you and to me. So we're we're led by the Spirit uh, because, if if, I mean, if we do, then that's evidence that we are sons of God. Sons of God. That's what he throws out there at the end of verse 14. Sons of God. So that's what he's going to talk about next. This is what the Spirit wants us to understand. So, verse 15. If you did not receive the... For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So one of the big things, the Holy Spirit, his leadership in our, our lives, one of the really big things that he's wanting to do 
is that he's wanting to open our eyes continually to the fact that we are God's children if we're born again. He really wants us to know this. And he does a lot of different things to communicate it. And one of the first things that he does to communicate it is found there in verse 15. He takes us from having a spirit of slavery to having a spirit of adoption as sons, or a spirit of bondage to having a spirit of adoption, uh, to being ostracized and enslaved to being God's children, uh, accepted by the Lord. Now, uh, when Paul was writing, he's, of course, writing to the Roman uh, church, the people in the city of Rome. So they had a certain understanding of what adoption looked like. Like for us, we usually would envision more of like uh, a child being adopted into a family. Maybe a, a child with no family being adopted into now a family. And a lot of times that child being adopted at a very young age, perhaps even in infancy or even right at birth, being taken into their new family and being adopted. And certainly the Christian doctrine of adoption should help us as believers embrace the beautiful element of that kind of adoption. Many of you are here today and you were yourself literally physically adopted in that kind of way. And you rejoice over it, perhaps. You're thankful that God did that within your life and within your heart. And here we discover that God has adopted us. But the Roman concept of adoption was a little bit bigger than just what we might think of as adoption. It was that plus a different element. You could be 35 years old, enslaved, serving as a slave in Rome. Over half of Rome was enslaved at the time that Paul is writing. You could be enslaved as a grown man or a grown woman, and the master of the house could look at you and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a decision now that you are going to legally, technically, powerfully, through and through, effectively, you're going to become my official child. And your old name is no longer your name. And even the debts that you currently have in bringing you into my family, those debts are now wiped away. They're eliminated because I'm bringing you into my family. So it was like a powerful thing, the concept of adoption. If you were enslaved, you would perhaps long for that kind of adoption, long to be considered that way by your master. So there are things the Spirit does to cultivate our relational feeling about God, but this actual concept, the adoption, actually has probably more to do with the positional understanding of where we're at with God. That we have been fully, by God's power, transferred into his family. And that he has cut all ties to what we used to be. That's cool. Like all your debts, all your sins, all the bondage, all the stuff that Satan had over you, no longer has it over you. It's eliminated. It's done away with when you receive Christ. You are adopted into the family of God. It is a legal reality in the sight of God. This is designed to give you security before God. To have this understanding and sense like I belong to him and I'm so safe in him. My position is final, complete, and secure. So that's one thing the Spirit's trying to like convince you of. 
and try to do inside of you. But not only that, also verse 15, so that we wouldn't fall back into fear, but instead cry, Abba, Father. This is like a flashback. You know when you're watching a movie and they show like the main character, they have like a flashback of like something traumatic experience that they had gone through previously. This is what Paul is doing. He's saying, that's what we used to be. We just lived in fear. We lived in fear of God. We lived in fear of our relationship with him. We lived in fear of our own sin. We lived in like fear of what was going to happen to us. Were people going to discover how wrong and raunchy we really are in the inside? Are we, you know, like that fear was just there. It manifested itself in a lot of different ways, insecurities, all all of that. But that's how we operated. But here he's saying that we've been transferred and the Spirit's trying to help us because he causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. This is like really emotional. He uses not the word pray or say, but the word cry. And then he doesn't use the word father, but he uses the word Abba. It's a tender word. It's the word that a juvenile, an infant would use in talking to their daddy. We, we cry. There's this sense, he says, within us, the spirit is causing us to say, I belong to that God. God, I want you. God, I need you. God, I love you. God, I, 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 I feel that I, I want to be closer to you than I've ever been. If you've ever felt that way, you can ask yourself the question, where does that come from? And what he's saying is, it comes from the Holy Spirit working through your life. That's a Holy Spirit of God doing that inside of your life, causing you to cry out to God. Now, if I were to ask the question, how do you know that you belong to God? How do you know that you're one of God's children? There's a doctrinal answer to that question. But Paul isn't giving the doctrinal answer here. He's giving the emotional answer to that question because my spirit yearns for the living God. I want God so badly. I love God. And even when I'm running from him, even when I'm resisting him, there's a thing within my heart that knows that I will not be satisfied there and that I can only be satisfied in God and with God. Now, there's a couple of like implications of that, right? You know, one would be, if that's what the Spirit does inside of us, if you have never felt an inclination, a draw in your heart towards God, if that has never been a part of your heart and never been a part of your life, it would be irresponsible for me not to say to you, perhaps you have trusted in the wrong thing for your salvation. Perhaps you have trusted in some kind of work, some kind of church attendance, some kind of outward external thing. Because when you are truly born again and God gets a hold of your life and you're regenerated by his spirit, this is part of what what eventually, at least at moments, will happen in your life. You will long for God. You will cry out within, oh, Father, I need you. God, I need you. And the other implication of this is that this would help us know that as a Christian now, we will know that we'll never be satisfied with the things of the flesh and that we'll only be satisfied with more of God. Because the Spirit has reconfigured us to operate like that. The Spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. So we're chasing all kinds of stuff, but we got to chase God. 
Fellowship with God, relationship with God. He satisfies the human heart, satisfies our hearts. Okay, let's close this out together this morning. In verse 16 and 17, he says, okay, so we're children. We've been adopted. We belong to him legally. he's, He's pulling us up to himself, even by himself, causing us to cry, Abba, Father, But verse 16, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit. One of the things that he does, according to Paul here in verse 16, is that he is bearing witness that we are God's children. He's just doing that. How does he do that? I think he does that in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, like, Moments where I want to pray, that's the Spirit. Uh, Moments where I want to be loving, that's the Spirit. Moments I want to share my uh, salvation, the gospel message, that's the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit working in my life. The Spirit bears witness. But Paul is saying there's a double witness. It's, number one, the assurance of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit in your heart. But he bears witness with our spirit, Paul says. So you have this double thing that's happening. The Holy Spirit is giving us assurance, but the, our own inner man is saying, yes, I belong to God. I belong to him. So, you know, like the question would come sometimes, like, well, how do we know this is all true? How can we really believe this? And there's some great answers to that question. But after you go through a lot of those answers, like at the end of the day, a big answer for me is because I have this assurance that the Spirit has given and that my own spirit sees and bears witness to that God has taken possession of me and that I belong to him, that I am a child of God. I hope you see how intensely The Spirit of God wills that we would know that we're the children of God. It's a big part of his heart for you and for me. He's looking at you right now. He's looking at me right now. He's like, I want you to know more than you've ever known before that you belong to God. If you're a born-again believer, you're covered by the blood, I want you to know more than ever that you are one of God's children. And this is important because we live in this world that is so messed up with identity problems. You know, where kids are growing up in this like generation and in, and in this world where they're being told that they evolve from nothing, that there is no image of God placed upon them, and that God did not make them male or female. So the moment there's a little doubt within their minds, they're actually being encouraged. Like, think about it. Maybe you're not a. Maybe you're not male. Maybe you're something else. Like that's being encouraged. Because there's just this confusion of who even are we? And the Spirit is trying so hard with His children to say, you are a child of God. That is who you are. You belong to Him. He's remade you. He's birthed you. You belong to Him. I know in my house, you know, I'm, when it comes to being a father, I'm just a shadow of the legit perfect father. But I try. <laughs> I try. And one of the things that I try is I try to help my daughters understand that they belong to me and that I belong to them. 
I want them to know I do anything for them, that I protect them, that I watch over them, that I have their best interest in mind. I want them to know that. I want them to know their name. I want them to know who they are. I want to help define them if I can and speak that into their lives. I want to, I want to be a part of that process. I remember being a kid. I probably say this kind of thing more than my dad said this to me, but every once in a while, I'll be like, why, hey, why can't we, dad, why can't we do this? Why can't we do that? Or why are we doing this? Or why are we doing that? And sometimes the answer was, and I didn't really totally understand it, but it, it was like, well, we Holdridges. And that was kind of the answer. That's my last name, in case you're wondering. Like, who is a Holdridge? That's, that's my family. So he'd be like, well, we Holdridges, we don't, no, like Holdridges don't do that. And Holdridges do this. And sometimes that'd be helpful to me to realize like, okay, all right. You know, uh, now I'm learning how to act like a Holdridge, right? And, uh, so, and so now I love saying that to my, I love saying that to my daughters. Like, why, dad, why? why? You're a Holdridge. <laughs> you know, like, uh, kind of thing. They love it. They really enjoy that. But uh, this is the Father speaking to us, you belong to me. This is what we do. This is who we are. Filled with my spirit in Christ, this is who I've made you to be. The Spirit wants you to have this assurance, this conviction in your heart. Okay, last thing, verse 17. And I would never teach this if it had not just been written right there, because it's so audacious to me. He says, verse 17, and if children, if we're children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Part of what the Spirit wants you to know is that if you are in Christ, you're also an heir of God. But he doesn't stop there. Did you see that? He said, we're joint heirs with Christ or co-heirs, some of your Bibles say, with Christ. That's cool because if we were just heirs with God, I know what my mind would do with that kind of concept. I think, well, Jesus is like the main heir. And you think about Jesus, you know, if, if you imagine like a will being broken open, you know, and a, and a parent having died, you know, and the estate being passed down, you know, like you've heard maybe some of those horror stories. I hope you've never had to live it out yourself where maybe like a parent in their like last will and testament, they like get back at some of their kids, you know, and it's like my favored children, this is what they get. And then like you, you know, you get the old Volvo or something, you know, like that's, that's what you get. You know, if, if all it had said was that we are heirs, of God, then that's how I would imagine it. Like I get a little corner, a little slice of like God's forever kingdom, but Jesus, you know, he's, he's, he was like a way better son than me. So he gets like the whole deal, but he says, that's not the way it is. It's not a divvying up the inheritance kind of Uh, process. But he says, we're fellow heirs with Christ. There's no division. It's all Jesus's. It's all ours. So it's just this complete, like crushing, incredible reality that we are given in Christ. And to think that I went from Adam to this 
is astounding. J.B. Phillips, in his translation, said it this way, Think what that means. If we are his children, we share his treasures, and all that Christ claims as his will belong to all of us as well. Yes, if we share in his suffering, we shall certainly share in his glory. It's almost like Paul anticipated the error that we would make. Oh, I'm one of God's kids. I'll never suffer. So he's like, ah, slow your roll. Just a second. I need to make sure I clarify to you God's child, God's son, Jesus, suffered and then was brought into glory. And it's a privilege for us, yes, to be brought into glory and to be co-heirs with that very same Jesus, but it's also an honor for us to suffer with him right now. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. He says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In Philippians 3, verse 10, he said, That I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And John 15, verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. When believers get a hold of that concept, suffering with Jesus, at times, not because of our foolishness, but just at times because of Jesus and what he teaches and what his word says, at times being hated by a culture, being hated by a philosophy or a stream of thought, uh, when Christians don't have a good grasp of that, a lot of times we buckle, we change our philosophies, we change what we believe to mirror parrot, mask, uh, embrace a worldly thought and concept. But when we understand, no, sometimes we suffer with the Lord. It helps us in advance to hold fast to the Lord and to his word, even when it's difficult, even when it might be hard. And so Paul is telling us here, man, we have a beautiful sonship in Christ. So again, the two things the Lord wants us, the Holy Spirit is trying to work inside of us. We're not in debt to the flesh, but we're in debt to the Holy Spirit to be led by him, to follow after him. So we, we owe him big time. But then number two, he wants us to know, and he's trying to show us in all these cool ways, we are children of God. And when that is understood by a person, I think it elevates just like the way we operate. And the way we live, just understand, like, man, God's going to do something in my life. He wants to change me. I'm not a free agent. I want to follow hard after him. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace, mercy, compassion, love. Lord, all that you have done within our hearts. It's incredible for us, Lord, to consider that it's not just that you've saved us from our sin on the day of judgment, but that you've actually done things like this within us. It's so powerful, Lord, and we're so thankful. And we just rejoice in it today. Please, Holy Spirit, continue to open up our eyes and our minds to get it and to see the radical position that is ours in Christ. Thank you, Lord.